All right, now. They had it all going on this morning. The only thing they were lacking was a little bit of this. Like, you know, as long as you keep your feet planted, it's all right now, okay? Yeah, thank you. Just follow Mitch. He'll tell you. Amen. That bless your heart. As the old preacher said, if that didn't light your fire, check your wood. It may have gotten wet. Thank you, Ryan. Thank you, choir, orchestra. You're going to want to open your Bibles, activate your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5, Paul's letter of Ephesians chapter 5, and uh, we're going to be there. I'll catch up with you in just a moment. It's a prison letter, one that uh, is written to a church, the church, and certainly has relevance and application for us today. The book of Ephesians is uh, divided into six chapters, and so just a little bit of background on that before we jump into chapter 5. The first three chapters are about doctrine, and then the, the last three chapters are about how we're going to live that doctrine out. And so the first uh, three chapters are about worship, and then the, the last three chapters are about our walk in Christ. So it's just an easy way to, to think about the book. It divides up very uh, symmetrically that way, and uh, you can understand it. And Paul gets to a point at the end of chapter 3 where he just, he's just expressed so much about the living Christ that he just kind of just erupts into glorious worship and then begins in chapter 4 and says, in light of this, because of this, this is how we're supposed to live. This, is, this isn't just for us to, an idea for us to relish. We're supposed to incorporate this truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ and being in Christ into our daily lives, our daily decisions, our daily relationships. And so he begins to unpack that and what that looks like within the context of the church. And then we, we come to, to chapter 5, where we're going to be today. And if you, if you think about uh, modern culture in uh, the times in which we live, it's a pretty amazing thing when you think about it. There's never been so much information available to so many people around the globe all at once. I mean, you realize if, if you've got one of these, if you've got a, a smartphone, now, a lot of days I think this is a dumb phone, but um, if you have a smartphone, you have more computing power than the Apollo spacecraft that went to the moon. It's a pretty amazing thing to think about the information that's available to us. In fact, there's a lot of messages and a lot of information that comes into our life, and the question isn't anymore can we find out the information? The question is, to whom will you listen? You see, marketers tell us that the average American will have about 2,000 messages come into their life every day. You know, billboards and uh, things on the internet and, and just television. You're going to be bombarded in the North American society with marketing messages of people who want you to wear what they want you to wear and go where they want you to go and buy what they want you to buy. And you can't control all of those messages that come into your life, but you can control to whom you will listen and how you're going to filter out and choose uh, how you're going to live your life. And so here's the really good news. And here's the sermon in a sentence. God's already given us what we need to know how to live our lives. He's given us his word. And so uh, you have to be very discerning. I, I, let me illustrate this. I, I found this out of a... Um, a manual out of a U.S. Uh, Peace Corps manual, 
And you remember, particularly back in the 60s and 70s, there was this big movement to engage people in um, doing good all around the world and building bridges and digging wells, and they would join the Peace Corps. Well, this was the manual that they would have, particularly if you were going to go serve in the region of the Amazon in South America. And it's what to do if you are ever attacked by an anaconda. So... You may want to write these down. You know, the day's early. You don't know what's going to happen. Here you go. There's 10 steps of what to do. Here you go. Number one, well, first there's an intro. It says, related to the boa constrictor, the anaconda is the largest snake species in the world. It grows to 35 feet in length and weighs three to 400 pounds. Number one, if you are attacked by an anaconda, do not run. The snake is faster than you are. Can I just say he's going to have to prove it? Okay. <laughs> Number two, lie flat on the ground, put your arms tight against your sides, your legs tight against one another. Number three, tuck your chin in. Number four, the snake will begin to nudge and climb over your body. Number five, I like this one, do not panic. (laughs) Don't mind that you're getting eaten by a big snake. Number six, after the snake has examined you, it will begin to swallow you from the feet end, always from the feet end. Permit the snake to swallow your feet and ankles. Do not panic. Number seven, the snake will now begin to suck in your legs into its body. You must lie perfectly still. This will take a long time. Number eight, when the snake has reached your knees, slowly and with as little movement as possible, reach down, take your knife, and very gently slide it into the side of the snake's mouth between the edge of its mouth and your leg, and suddenly rip upward, severing the snake's head. Number nine, be sure to have your knife. Number 10, be sure your knife is sharp. Can I just tell you right now, if I'm ever attacked by an anaconda, I'm not going to do any of that, okay? It may be somebody's idea of what to do, but I'm not going to do that. So you have to decide what you're going to listen to in this world. And so as we look at the book of Ephesians today, and particularly as we come into chapter 5, Right off the bat, here's the first thing it says, Therefore be imitators of God as dearly loved children. Right there, if we we could just stop and have a whole sermon or a whole message just on that one sentence. But Paul's telling us to be imitators of God the Father, to pattern our life after His, to follow in His footsteps. In fact, the word there, to follow or to uh, pattern yourself after, really is the word that we, the same root word where we get the word mimic. So we're to mimic God our Father in the way that we pattern our lives. Now, we can't mimic God in everything of who He is and, and how He operates. We, we cannot create a universe. Uh, we cannot even love all of the way that He loves. But we can display His moral attributes. We can follow and choose to live our lives in a way that reflects who He is in our lives. So we're to mimic Him. And notice it says, as dearly Loved children. I love that idea. It follows through many times that we're adopted into God's family through the book of Ephesians. I love how this uh, Paul chooses under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to talk about our relationship being that of, of children. And not just children, but loved children. And not just any loved children, but dearly loved children. That's, I don't know how you rolled in here this morning and you think about your relationship with God, but, but you, can I just tell you right out of the first sentence of Ephesians chapter 5, the way that we're supposed to see ourselves as we pattern our lives after Him is just like a dearly loved child who just runs to Abba, runs to Father, 
with open arms. That, that's, the, that's the biblical picture that's being painted here. So Ephesians 5 goes on now to, to speak more specifically on what this kind of mimicking looks like. So three points. I'm going to get through three points. And I'm going to leave you alone. So uh, they're on the back of your worship guide. So it's real simple. Uh, here's what we're going to do. We're going to talk about walking in love, walking in light, and walking in wisdom. And, and by doing that, we'll be doing what it says here in verse 1, that we'll be mimicking God, our dearly loved Father. So if you want to know what God is expecting from you, if you want to know what He's looking for from you in your life, He's looking for this kind of patterning, this kind of behavior, this kind of reflection. So it says in verses 1 and 2 of Ephesians chapter 5, Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us, and gave himself up as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. It's great to be adopted into God's family. And, and the, the, the natural expression of that, right after it says, dearly loved children, it says, and walk in the way of love. Walk in the way of love. You know what I've learned about love? <clears throat> love finds a way. Love goes the distance. Love stays as long as it takes. Love pays whatever price needs to be paid. That's the kind of love that it's talking about here. To walk in the way of love. Just as Christ loved us, gave himself as a fragrant offering. So love's not a noun here as much as it is a verb. It's an action. Sacrificial love is not easy, is it? Here's why. Because we're all self-serving some of the time. Even in our purest, best moments, we can, we can question our motives, can't we? Am I, I'm the only one? Okay. Um, yeah, we, 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 have to, we have to really look at ourselves and say, is my love patterned after a person? Is it patterned after an idea? It should be patterned after Jesus Christ. And this verse provides a marvelous description about what true love is. It always involves giving ourselves away. Paul says Christ loved us and gave himself for us. And he repeats this idea here in chapter 5, later in chapter 5, when he tells husbands to love your Christ as Christ loves the church and gave himself for it. Um, you know, it's not just feeling sorry for someone and uh, just having empathy for them. We should. That's a good thing. But this is different. This is this is. Love that hurts. This is love that sacrifices. This is love that bleeds. This is love that does whatever is necessary to accomplish it. And John in First John would write, "Little children, we must not love with words or speech, but with truth and action." Y'all remember about four or five years ago? I think they're coming out with a movie about this. But there was this um, tragedy down in Chile with these miners. I think there were about thirty of them. And they were trapped down there for a few weeks, as I recall. And they were down there. And they finally got some air to them. And they were able to get, I think, a little bit of food. But they couldn't get them out. And, and they had to actually invent new technology, drilling technology, and import equipment from other countries. I think a lot of it came from here in the United States. And they had to do whatever it took to, to find a way to dig these trapped men out to get them out, and, and it, it, as I thought about that, I thought this is the kind of love that just won't give up and keeps on going. Because here's the thing: for those miners, their hope wasn't that somehow they were going to figure out a way to scratch their way out of there. 
that they were going to come up with some new idea about how they can escape the trap that they were in. Their hope was completely dependent upon someone up there loving them enough to do whatever it took to rescue them. Do you understand that the gospel is a rescue story? That you and I are are hopelessly trapped in our own sin, and we have no way of escaping on our own effort. There's no way we're going to scratch ourselves out. Our only hope is that somebody up there loves us enough that they're not going to stop, and he did not stop, and went all the way to do whatever it took, including the price of his only begotten son, that we could be rescued. That's what propels, what, what propels people to go to Guatemala and, and, and blow up gophers and other things that they did. Well, there could be some other motivations for that. But what propels people to go and, and welcome people, these refugees, and love on them and show them love? It's not just empathy. It's not just a desire to do good. It's not just a desire to have a better city. All those things are great. It's the gospel that propels us. It's the changed heart. It's the changed life. Because a father who calls us dearly loved children, who sent his son down to rescue us, now sends us on that rescue mission in love. So walk, dear children, as it says, in love. Let me ask you a question. Are your relationships characterized by love? If people were to follow you around with a clipboard the last week, and, and just go from conversation to conversation and situation, how you did your work, how you were at home, would they say, yeah, this is a loving person. This is a person who, now I'm glad nobody was following me around, so okay, so I, I'm with you. But see, this is not just a concept. This is supposed to change our countenance. It's supposed to change our conversations. It's supposed to change our relationship. It's supposed to change our finances, that, that we could look at our life And say, yes, this person's heart is captured by the love of Jesus Christ. And through this person, they are mimicking their father because of their love. Amy Carmichael exemplified this type of love. She was a great missionary forced to India in the 20th century. And most of her ministry was spent caring for children, many of whom were tied up in sexual bondage and sexual slavery trade there in India. She was the founder of the Donover Fellowship, which became a refuge for more than a thousand children. She died in India in 1951 at the age of 83. And before dying, she asked that no stone or marker be placed over her grave. But the children that she cared for so deeply over the years and loved, they decided to place a birdbath over the place where she was buried with just a single word inscription, Amma, which in that language meant mother. Amy Carmichael lived out her famous saying that one cannot give, one can give without loving, but one cannot love without giving. You can give without loving. You can be philanthropic. You can be a do-gooder without loving, but you cannot truly love without giving. Love, true love, will always propel you to giving sacrificially. So that's the first thing. That ought to be enough. We ought to just be able to shut everything down and go home at this point, right? Let's just go do that for the next week, and then we'll come back and talk around the next one. But since we have a little bit more time, and Mark asked me to take the whole time, I'll, um, we'll go on. Number two, not only walk in love, but walk in light. Walk in light. Go down to verse 8 with me for a minute and following. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light. 
For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. It is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret. But everything exposed by the light becomes visible, and everything that is illuminated becomes a light. Notice the identity change. Paul doesn't just say that you once walked in darkness. He says you were darkness. Again, no hope. No, no, no prospect of anything but darkness. And, and the gospel is that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Not while we were running towards him. While we were running against his love is when he died for us. So, so instead of being dark, I mean, could he make it more clear? Um, do you ever realize that it's impossible to be in the dark and the light at the same time? You are, you are either in darkness or you are either in light. Because as soon as the light comes on, what happens? The darkness is gone. And by the way, light beats dark every time. There's never a time when darkness beats light. You walk into any dark room, you turn on the light, the darkness isn't going to win that battle. Okay? Light beats dark every time. You know, it's no fun being in the dark. It reminds me of the story of this uh, lady who's uh, needed her broom. And so she asked her little son, Johnny, to go out into the garage and fetch the broom. And Johnny went to the garage door, opened up, turned on the light, but the light wasn't working. The light bulb was out. And Johnny was at that age where he's still kind of afraid of the dark. And so Johnny stood there for a moment. Then he turned around, went back to mom and said, Mom, she said, where's the broom? She said, well, I went to the door and it was dark in there, Mom. And I'm scared. I don't want to go in there. She said, Johnny, you do not have to be scared of the dark. You know that God is with you even in the dark times. And uh, so he kind of moped back over to the door and opened it up, and it sure was dark in there. And he knew that mom wanted him to get that broom, and so he thought he'd pray a little bit. He said, God, if you're in here, would you hand me the broom? (laughs) It's no fun living in the dark. You bump into things, you trip. Part of what this means to live in the light is that we live our lives before God with nothing to hide. There's nothing secret in the bushes. There's no dark corner that his light doesn't shine into. It's it's not this, well, God, I'm going to praise you like this on Sunday. But Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, I'm going to kind of hold on to some things. Now, being in the light means that we're completely exposed That every dimension, domain, aspect of our life is exposed to the light of the gospel, the truth of the gospel. And to be that kind of light. I I was, um, it's kind of a silly story, but it it represents this idea. About two or three years ago, I was um, flying down to Fort Lauderdale and back to do some work with some churches. And I was in the Fort Lauderdale airport coming home, tired, been working. And I had my carry-on bag and going through those. And God bless whoever, if you're here this morning and you work or have family members that work for TSA, Homeland Security, that is no walk in the park, okay? That is, that is a tough, tough job. But you know how it is. You've got to do the thing. You've got to take off your shoes and your belt and, you you know, complete strangers all around. And it's just kind of one of these experiences that you get to do nowadays. And so I'm going through the, the line there at TSA and I get through. And I had with me in my bag, my carry-on bag, a little plastic orange. I used it for a, a training uh, illustration. And I had gotten it at Walmart at the plastic orange aisle. And, you know, it's just a little plastic orange. And I used it to talk about fruit and fruitfulness, that sort of thing. And so um, 
I get through the line and I'm waiting for my bags to come out. And all of a sudden, bells and whistles and smoke alarms and everything start going off. And all of a sudden, there was like about 10 people in those blue shirts just descended upon my location. And I'm surrounded and like, sir, where'd you get this? And I said, um, Walmart. And uh, they, they, they commenced inspecting this little, and I guess you maybe if you put a fuse in it or something, it would look suspicious, but... But they inspected, inspected, and they said, what's, in the, what's inside of this? I said, I don't know. I've never cut it open. Um, so they scanned it, and then they finally took a, a cloth, and they wiped it down, and then took that cloth to see, inspected that cloth to see if there was any explosive elements or you know, chemicals on the cloth, that sort of thing. And all the way, and I decided I'd take a picture of them, you know, kind of while they're doing it. That's not a good idea, by the way. I don't recommend that. They don't, they frown upon that. They do. But um, it's not, not suggested. But, um, but can I tell you, at the end of that, after about 10 minutes, finally the officer, and they were always courteous, they were always very kind, he came over to me and he said, there's nothing wrong here, um, here's your fruit back, here's your bag back, have a nice day. And, and the whole while, I, I thought it was, I was, you know, so were you nervous? Well, maybe a little, I was a little concerned. Um, but you know, I knew this, I knew I had nothing to hide. I knew that, that ultimately you could investigate me and put whatever light you want on me because I wasn't doing anything wrong. I didn't have anything to hide. And no matter how hard you look, all you were going to find was a plastic orange bought at Walmart. So uh, that's kind of what this is saying is be that kind of person. Follow in the pattern of Jesus Christ who had nothing to hide, of, of, you know, who could stand before his accusers. And they couldn't come up with anything against him. They had to make up stuff against him because there was nothing that they could, could come up with. That's the kind of life that we're supposed to live, living in the light. It means we put to death all the sin. We, we, we work and strive to eliminate those dark corners of our heart that God seems to struggle to get a hold of. It says in Colossians chapter 3, as God's people were told to kill sin and to flee from sin, 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verse 18 says, and that we're not only to be light, but to expose darkness by working to fix, heal, and mend everything that sin is broken. Walk in the light. So walk in love, walk in light. And then the last thing, walk in wisdom. Jump down to verse 17 if you would. Pay careful attention then to how you walk. Not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of the time because the days are evil. So don't be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Finally, Paul pleads for us to not only walk in love and light, but walk as wise people. Not in our own wisdom, but wisdom that he has given to us. You know, those who walk carefully do not walk foolishly. Um, It might be hard sometimes to describe what wise living is, but... But boy, I sure can point out what foolish living looks like. And you can even look at my own, my own pattern in my own life and find some of that, unfortunately. So um, I was, uh, recently I was on a, a spiritual walk. I find I can hear from the Lord sometimes when I'm just out somewhere, just com- having a conversation with God. And um, I came across what I think is a pretty good example of what it means to walk in wisdom. And um, so I was at a very spiritual a, real, a place that I find I can hear from God. Uh, I, was, I was at Publix. And um, I was walking up and down the aisles, and I came across this. And I went, that's it. That's, that's what, what walking in wisdom looks like. And so what this is, in case you can't see maybe in the back, <clears throat> this is Betty Crocker's Delight Supreme Turtle Brownie Mix 
with real California walnuts and a pouch of rich caramel. All right. Can I just tell you, this is the good stuff. Okay. All right. Now, let's just say for a moment, go with me here, that, that these wonderful, luscious, scrumptious brownies represent the good things that God has in for your life. That better marriage, that better financial situation, that, that better walk with him, that rich God life that, that he promises us if we would walk in wisdom, that, that, that we would have wisdom in our life and we wouldn't spend time and energy having to undo things and fix things because we're walking in wisdom. And there's a promise for that. Well, there's a command for this. So God wants this for our lives. He wants the, things to be good in our lives. He wants things to, to work out for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. So with that in mind, I thought, well, that's, that's really good. But you know, if there's truth in advertising, there's, there's some of these in here, right? So if, if I went and I just opened up this box, and I ought to be able to just pull out what's on the front of the box. But you know what? As I do that, what I pull out is this. Now, I'm no chef, and I don't watch Food Network that much, but I'm smart enough to know this is not that. Okay? I mean, if there's truth in advertising, I should open the box, and there should be some of these in here. But there aren't. You know what I found? This. Isn't this kind of a little bit more descriptive of your life and my life? My life's a lot like that. It has the potential. There's some good things. But some things are going to have to happen to get from here to here. And that's the beauty of not just the front of the box, but the back of the box. You see, the front of the box is a promise. The back of the box is a plan. The front of the box is a goal. But the back of the box is a process. Okay? See, too many times we talk about, wouldn't it be good to have all this going on in our lives? But we never turn over the box And in case you haven't figured it out yet, friends, this is the back of the box. God's Word teaches us about love. God's Word teaches us about light. God's Word word teaches us about wisdom and right living. But here's the problem. Too many times we want the front of the box, but we either don't acknowledge or we don't do what's on the back of the box. And years go by. And we start getting mad at God, mad at other people. And you know, there's an expiration date on being mad at other people for your lack of spiritual growth. If you I would just, I mean, I'd be a stronger Christian if if, this would just happen, or so-and-so would do this, or this ministry would, or somebody messed me up in my back. Can I just say, there's an expiration date on that. That at some point, you have to be responsible for what God has given you, and say, he's got a promise for me, and i got to start doing this. But here's what, here's what gets in the way. Now, I'm just preaching to myself up here. If this, if this helps you, that's great. But I'm just, I'm just talking to Rick. You see, you, you've got to do at least two things. First, you have to believe the back of the box. That this isn't just some old ancient writings that applied in an ancient Near Eastern culture, but doesn't have any bearing upon today in the, the relevancy of the 21st century. You have to believe that this is relevant. You have to believe that God's word still works. It's not just a collection of pithy sayings and wonderful teachings, but it cuts into our hearts and our lives and it anchors 
and, and it teaches us. In fact, let me just, I love the way that the New Living Translation renders 2 Timothy 3.16. It says, all scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. That's what scripture is. But you've got to believe it. You can't just go, well, that was good for grandma. But don't, I'm not sure about this. I'm, you know, now, let me ask you a question. Do you believe the scripture has more truth about your relationships, your marriage, your children than social media? Where, where are you going to to find out how to strengthen your marriage or strengthen? Because if you're going to anywhere else other than God's word, that says something about who your God is. Or where do you go to? Do you believe that the Bible has truth and wisdom to share about your finances? Or do you think the Wall Street Journal would be a better source? Now, nothing against social media, nothing against the Wall Street Journal. But ultimately, they are not God's revelation of wisdom to man. They are man's revelation of wisdom to man. And we all know that that is fallible. But a perfect God cannot utter an imperfect word. A perfect God will always give us a perfect word. And if I spend more time reading the Wall Street Journal or Facebook or other things and applying those principles in my life and my life gets all jacked up, that's not God's fault. Just me. Just talking to me up here. Um, Because who you go to for revelation is your God. Who you go to for answers becomes your source of identity. Just, just kind of let that sink in. But here's the second thing. Not only do we have to believe the back of the box, guess what else we got to do? Yeah, we got to do it. You know, we could go, well, I know it says 350. Well, I'll tell you what, it says a couple, quarter cup of water and a third cup of oil and an egg. I'm going to try it with a lemon and some vinegar. And instead of 350 for 15 minutes, I'm, I'm going to do 500 degrees at four. I'm going to do it my way. We were listening to Alistair Begg preach this past week. And he, you know, still, across the culture, one of the most popular songs still, utter, still given at funerals is, I did it my way. That's a horrible plan for life. And by the way, that's a, just if you think about the setting, I mean, the guys laid out dead. They're like, how did it work out for you, you know? Just saying. Maybe, maybe God's way would be a better plan than I did it my way. So we not only have to believe the back of the box, we have to do the back of the box. Pay careful attention, it says, to how you walk. Not as unwise, but as wise. You know, that sounds simple, but it's not, is it? It's easy for me to get up here and just say, we just need to do what God's Word says. It's a day-to-day, moment-by-moment surrender of obedience. And here's the problem. Too many times in my life, I've been spiritually educated beyond my level of obedience. I know more than I do. And information does not lead to transformation. But you take information and start giving it application. And God can do something with that. God can begin to shape and mold and change and teach and sandpaper down some of those rough spots. So I'm not up here saying that this is easy. We're to love with a sacrificial love that he loved us. 
We're to walk as light, dispelling darkness, and to be wise, not unwise. And it all starts by pouring ourselves out as a fragrant sacrifice for the sake of others. And in doing so, we are imitators of our Heavenly Father. You remember that little children's song we teach our children? Maybe it was sung to you as you were growing up, or you sing it to your kids, or you've heard of it, but it's, Be careful, little eyes, what you see. Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. Because your Father up above is looking down in love. God's not standing up there with a big stick ready to whack us. Now, he will if he has to. That's not his disposition. His disposition towards us is one of love. So be careful, little eyes. Be careful, little feet, where you go. Be careful, little hands, what you do. Be careful, little mouth, what you say. These things matter. As the body of Christ gathered here in Mandarin, may we be people who mimic our Father. When people look at us, they go, I see their their Father in those people. You know, my dad went home to be with the Lord uh, about several years ago. And one of the greatest compliments I ever get with people who knew him is when they come up to me and I I see some of your dad in you. Oh, this catches me right here. That they could see something of my father in me. How much more joy does it give our heavenly father when he can look down at us and go, oh, they can see me because they're looking at them. They see the love. They see the light of the truth. They see the wisdom of how to live because they're living and patterning their lives after me. Let's pray.